Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. He looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today, it comes from the Gospel of Luke as well, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. This is known as the parable of the rich fool. A wonderful title for this parable. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin this morning by telling you about a study that was done at the University of Oregon by a professor of psychology known as Paul Slavic. He walked into his classroom And he threw this photo up onto his screen. And he explained to the people who were in his class, the students, that the woman's name was, or the little girl's name is Rokia, and that her place is in Mali in Africa. She's in a refugee camp there. And that she was in line to work with an organization called Save the Children. But she needed donations in order for that to happen. And so he told the class a little bit about her background, her aspirations, her hopes, her dreams. And then he put a website up on the board and said, can you go to this website and donate on her behalf? On average, the students in his class donate about $2.50 per person to Rokia's cause. A couple hours later, Slavic, he had the second section of his class got them together, threw the same picture up on the screen for Rokia, and again, gave the whole background about who she was, but this time he added in one extra little thing. He gave them some statistics on poverty on the African continent. So he talked about how many people are starving to death, how lack of nutrition can affect people's education, going all the way up into the teenage years because they get behind, and then how an exploding population coupled with a decline in food production is really exacerbating this problem. Again, he gives the website, says go and donate. 
on average, the students in his second section gave 50% less than the first section of his class. Now, what was the difference between the first section and the second section? What did I say the only difference was? Do you remember? Statistics. That's it. It was the introduction of statistics. And so Slavic and his colleagues, they set out to figure out why is it that the introduction of these statistics caused people to give half as much? Because you would think, right, if you're more informed about the problem, aren't you going to want to give more to fix the problem? But apparently that was not the case. What they discovered is that the human mind is not capable of processing all of those statistics. I mean, we can look at them, but the truth is it's hard for us to even comprehend what that level of poverty and suffering would look like. But if you focus on one person, I tell you about who they are, how they suffer, I talk to you about how you can make a difference in their life, then you can make an emotional connection. You are able to feel sympathy and empathy for this one person. Because think about it, you see Rokia's picture up on that screen, right? Well, you can imagine what would happen if you two were switched. What if you were the person on the screen and she was the one sitting in the audience? You can imagine how you would want her to give to your cause, right? But the moment you stray away from that one person, we emotionally shut down and our generosity plummets. Slavic has redone this particular study in all kinds of different circumstances, in all kinds of different places, switching up the variables. He even did it one time where all he did was he placed Rokia's picture up on the screen next to one other child, saying, what we're going to do is we're going to help these two children. Again, giving dropped by half. And that doesn't make much sense now, does it? Because we should want to help more people, not less. Would you agree with that? I mean, we, want to, we should want to help five kids instead of one. But the truth is, we don't. And you can see this pattern emerge in your everyday life. Think about, for a moment, when you look at news stories. What are the news stories that, that you react to most fervently? Is it about groups of people or is it about individuals? It's individuals, right? That's why this photo that you all saw caused such a stir. Because when people saw this, they could connect with this young boy. Whereas the tens of thousands of people who have died in the Syrian conflict up to this point have garnered very, very little media attention in the Western world. But when you saw this one person, this one little boy, everybody was like, wow, that's amazing. And they could connect for the first time. Have you ever heard that old saying, one death is a tragedy? A million deaths is a statistic. That is very, very true. But you know what's even more interesting than how we give our money is why we give our money. So social scientists, they've done studies to figure out kind of how, what, when are we willing to open our pocketbooks to really give out our money? And they've grouped our giving into three separate categories. Now, each of these categories, they have the word altruism in them. So let me define that for you so we're all on the same page. The word altruism is when an animal gives to another animal at its own expense. It's a big fancy word for being selfless is really what altruism is. So the first category of altruism is known as pure altruism. 
This is when you give to a cause because you care about that cause. So let's say you love elephants. You give to the World Wildlife Federation because you want to make sure that elephants are going to survive, that they won't become extinct. So your reward for giving to that organization is knowing that that cause is furthered. That's pure altruism. The next category is known as impure altruism. That's when you give to a cause because it makes you feel good about giving to the cause. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say somebody comes to your door, they knock on your door, they say, I would love it if you would give some money for cancer research. Now, you may not care about cancer research. You may not even care about cancer, honestly, because you might not know anybody. But you give the money anyway because it makes you feel good knowing that you've given money to help further a good cause in the world. Understand? Impure altruism. The third category and the final category is known as social altruism. Now, when it comes to social altruism, you're not giving because you care about the cause. You're not giving because it makes you feel good. You give because you want to improve your standing in society. You want people to think well of you when you give your money. So this is stuff where you give and you get your name on a plaque or something like that, you know, that's up on a wall. So when you do that, now not everybody, I'm sure that you all have given, some of you have probably given and you've had your name put up on a wall, but when you do it from the standpoint of true social altruism, the whole idea is, is that you want potential mates to see you so they know how wealthy you are. And then on top of that, you do it because in the future, if you're dealing with other people in business, what you want them to see is that you're a good person and therefore they're going to be much more likely to help you out when you have to do business ventures in the future. Do you understand what I'm saying? It improves your social ability. So regardless of why you give, whether it be pure, impure, or social, the fact is, giving your money away, it feels really good. Have you ever seen somebody on the street who's homeless and you just take out some money and you give it to them? Have you ever done that before? It feels good to just know that you're trying to help somebody, particularly if you know that money is going to go towards something good. Now, what they've done, scientists, they've looked at our brains and they've realized that when you give your money away, that actually it releases the chemical dopamine. Now, dopamine is what actually makes you feel really good. It's a reward mechanism in the brain. And what they have decided and figured out is that actually when you give money away, there is more dopamine released in your brain than when you engage in selfish activities like sex or trying to eat your favorite foods, like these things which give us a high output of dopamine. There's more when you give away money than when you do those things. So from the perspective of your brain, giving is literally better than receiving. But here's the problem with giving away your money. And this is a problem that we all face. We all deal with it which is that there's a struggle in our minds, right? Because everybody in here, I, I'm looking at everybody in this room, and I know most of you, and I know how generous you are with your money. But there's a struggle here, because on the one side, you want to be generous, but on the other side, you got to live too, right? And so it's the struggle between giving away your money and having enough money to live on for yourself. Constant struggle. We're all trying to deal with that. And what's interesting is, if you look at this struggle in our minds, it defies logic and reason. And Jesus, he touches on this in the scriptures that we read today. So there were two scriptures we read. The first scripture is known as the widow's might. Now, you all have probably heard this scripture before. Am I right about that? Heard this one read once in a while. Okay, widow's might. Very simple scripture, right? Basically, Jesus, he's in the temple with his disciples, and he sees this widow. She throws two copper coins 
in the temple treasury as her offering. Now he looks at the disciples and he says, guys, I just want you to know that even though this woman, she gave very little money, you have to realize she gave more than all of these wealthy people in here because she gave all she had. Second scripture we read, parable of the rich fool. So in this parable, what happens is there's this wealthy person, this wealthy guy, and he becomes more wealthy from his business practices. So he ends up building up all this money, and he has to build these massive barns to store all his grain, and he's got to build all this stuff to store all his goods. He's just got so much stuff, and he's pretty happy with himself. I love that little, that little line in there where he's like, Soul, I feel pretty good about myself. You know what? I'm going to sit back and enjoy life, right? And then God comes in and calls this guy a fool and then takes his life, by the way, saying that those who store up treasures for themselves rather than being generous towards God will suffer the same fate. Now, each of these stories, they serve two purposes. The first purpose is the surface meaning of the story, which all of you probably can get at those surface meanings pretty easily. So the first story with the widow's might, very, very simple with the surface meaning. So the surface meaning of that story is just saying the amount of money that you give does not necessarily indicate your level of generosity, right? So that woman, she didn't give very much money, but was she super generous? Absolutely she was, super generous, because she gave all she had. The second story is a warning from Jesus to the wealthy. He's basically saying, God's watching how you use your money. So those are the two. That's the surface meaning. Did you get both of those? All right. So that leads us to the second purpose of these two scriptures. And this is a much deeper meaning. And this is the paradox that Jesus touches on in them. And this is something that social scientists have been documenting through a lot of experiments that they've been performing in the last 10 years. Now follow me on this, because the conclusion is hard to hear. But the conclusion goes like this. As human beings, generally speaking, the more wealth we accumulate, the less generous we become. I'll say that again. Generally speaking, as human beings, the more wealth we accumulate, the less generous we become. In other words, the poor are much more generous than the wealthy. So if we look at the widow's might, that woman, she didn't give a lot of money, right? So in terms of total dollars, what they're finding is, is that the poor, they give far less actual dollars than the wealthy. But in terms of total percentage of their income, they give it much higher rates than those who are wealthy. And the question is, why does this happen, right? Because you would think it would be the other way around, wouldn't it? Like, you would think, oh, I have more money, I'll just give more of it away. But that's not the way the accumulation of wealth works. And there's one reason why. Suffering. Chris Olavola, a professor at the University of Warwick, he performed a study where he brought people into his lab. And he gave each of these people $5. And he said to them, look, here's what you can do. You have a choice. You can spend this $5 however you want. You can take for yourself or give as much of it away. You could give it to a charity if you want to. And there were charities lined up. They could literally hand the money over to be given away. So for the first group, they brought into the lab. They were given the $5. And they could choose how much they wanted to give away. There was no restrictions on it. The second group, though, who came in, they were told that in order to give to a charity, they were going to have to stick their hands in painfully cold water. 
In other words, there's a major incentive for them not to give that money away, right? And so these people would have to suffer in order to give to a charity. Now, fascinatingly enough, the people who did not have to suffer gave away an average of $3 to a charity, kept the other two for themselves. But the people who stuck their hands in that painfully cold water always gave away more money, usually the entire $5. Now, why did this happen? Why is it that a person who suffers ends up giving away more money than a person who doesn't suffer, right? You would think that would, again, be the other way around. It's counterintuitive. You would think that if you're not suffering, you'd want to help somebody who is suffering. Well, what they have discovered is that there is a very close link in our minds between suffering and generosity. When we give our money, we do not give from a place of logic and reason. We give from a place of emotion. So if you feel an emotional connection to someone or something like a cause through suffering, then you are much more likely to give of your resources for that particular cause or to that particular person. This is why people who are poor tend to give away their money at much higher rates than people who are wealthy. And that is because people who are poor know what it means to struggle. They're always in the middle of suffering. And so when somebody comes to them and says, I need your help to help stop suffering, they're like, yeah, I get that. Let me write you a check. Do what I can do. Whereas people who are wealthy, their money has cushioned them from the everyday suffering that people with less money have to endure. And what's fascinating about this is that even if if you look at people who come out of poverty, who grew up very, very poor and end up very, very wealthy on the other end of it, what you see is that the closer they are to that poverty. So let's say somebody's in their teenage years, right? They're living in poverty. And then, I don't know, I'll just use a random example. Let's say they become a professional baseball player. So on the other end of it, right, they're making all this money. Now, the closer they are in age to when they were in poverty, the more likely they are to give to help it out. But the further away they get, right, in age, the older they become, the less they remember what it was like to suffer and struggle, and thus the less generous they become. Now, these are generalities. This is not true always across the board, but this is generally speaking. So what this tells us is something really, really amazing. And that is, if we want to end suffering in the world, we need a connection to it. I want to say that again, because that's really important. If we want to end suffering in the world, we need a connection to it. Because the more connected you are to suffering, the more likely you are to live out Jesus' expectations of how you are supposed to be generous with your resources. Now, about this time, every year, I come to you all, and I talk about how the members and friends of this church, I'm trying to inspire you to continue giving your money to this church and to this congregation. But you know what's great about this year, as opposed to all the other years that I've done this? So every single year I've been up here so far for the last three, this is now my fourth time doing this, I've been talking a lot about it's coming, this thing that we're doing, it's coming, this vision for the church, it's coming, right? We're going to build relationships, we're going to do our mission, we're going to be a caring church. I've been talking about it for three years. 
Now, finally, in my fourth time, I can come up here and I can tell you that every single one of those pillars is now active. We are in the midst of doing every single one of those things. So we are no longer talking about living out Jesus' vision for our lives. We are actively living it out. And that is why our stewardship theme for this year is live the vision. How many people in here would consider themselves to be a Christian? Just wondering. How many, how many people in? Yeah, just, I'm just wondering. Okay, it's good to know. I want to check sometimes, you know. Okay, so it's a good thing. So if you consider yourself to be a Christian, then what that means is you have dedicated your life to living according to Jesus' vision for how Jesus wants you to live your life. You're not living it your way. You're living it according to Jesus' way. And Jesus' way is very simple. He says, if you have faith in me, then you need to go out, and I'm going to help you build God's kingdom right here on earth. That's what it is. That's his, that's his vision for us. That's what he wants us to do. And so these three pillars that we set up, these are simply guiding principles that help us achieve this vision. So through relationships. I know many of you have been involved in groups and getting together. You're part of this larger community here at the church where you spend time together. And the reason why that's so important is because I really believe that we encounter God through our relationships with others. That is where we find God to be most present. That's where I see God the most is when I'm with you all and you all are showing me God existing in the world right through who you are. And then we have our unified mission where every Wednesday night we come together and you are given an opportunity to put your faith into action. So many of you have come out to that. And just by being present there, and I mean this, just by being present on that evening, you are there helping people who are struggling and suffering in their life, and you are tangibly making a difference in their world. And then finally, we have gotten our caring ministry up and going, thanks to Judy right here. She has been working with the deacons, and she's got our Stephen ministry. Now, have any of you in here ever been through a crisis in your life? I mean, I'm sure none of you ever have before, right? Never happened. I'm sure each of you has. And I want you to know, and this is so important that you hear this. Please hear this. When you go through difficult times and struggles in your life, we are here for you. That is a big part of what we do here in this church, is that we are here to help you walk through those dark times in your life. You come here to worship God, but you also come here and you need to know that wherever you are, we are here to walk next to you in the times of your life that are hard and difficult. And you know what? That's what the church is all about, right? Those are the three things. Relationships, mission, caring. That's the kingdom of God at work. And now I need your help to ensure that this church can continue doing those things into the future. Last year, you all gave, committed to the church, $1.2 million for the general budget. And that general budget, it covers salaries, it covers programs, it covers our ability to keep the lights on in this building. And then you gave $85,000 on top of that towards the unified mission. And in total, you gave $1,285,000 to the church. That's a lot of money that you all committed to this congregation. And I want to say thank you for doing that, for making that happen, because you all have enabled us to live out God's kingdom here on earth. Now, next Sunday, 
when you come in here, next Sunday is Commitment Sunday. Now, you should have received something like this in the mail this week. If you haven't, it's coming. And if you don't get one of these, they are in the pew. And so next Sunday, you're going to have an opportunity to write down a number on this card. And you're going to drop it in a basket in the service to show your commitment to our church. Can I take a moment to tell you what I hope you are willing to give this coming year? Can I just express that to you? My hope is that you would give to the church this coming year, you would commit to the church exactly what you gave last year. I want you to give the exact same amount. Now, how often do you hear somebody get up here when they're asking for money and tell you that they want you to give exactly the same? It's usually always more. Here's what I want you to do. You gave two numbers last year, right? You gave a number to the general budget, right? You wrote that number down. And then you gave a second number to the unified mission. What I would like you to do is to take both of those numbers, add them together, and write down that number on your card to hand it in next Sunday. If we are able to give the same total number of dollars this coming year, if we're willing to commit to that as we did last year, we're going to be in great shape going into 2017. Now, some of you in here, because I can see, some of you, you weren't here last year, and you weren't a person who was able to commit to the church in that way. And so you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, well, Alex, how much should I be giving to the church right now? And I'm so glad that you asked that question because, <laughs> you know, you need to know. So if you haven't given to the church before, the place where we ask you to start is $32 a week. $32 a week is what we ask for. Now, $32 a week, it comes out to $1,664 for the year for an individual and $3,328 for a couple. Now, for those of you who have never really given to a church much before, I can understand that those look like big numbers. And I can also imagine you sitting there, because this is how I used to think when I was sitting in the pews, which is, wow, so you're asking for this money. Do you do that? Now, this is not social altruism where I'm standing up here trying to improve where I am in society. I'm telling you that if I'm asking you for this, you need to know that that's what I'm giving. I'm not going to ask you to do something I'm not doing myself. So if you can hit that $32 a week mark, if that's possible for you, we'd very much appreciate it. And I want you to know that together, if you can give that or if you can give more, every dollar is going to go towards building God's kingdom right here on earth. Now, can I do one last thing before I end this morning? One last thing? You okay with that? I want to tell you about one last study, one last study that was done on the science of charity. Now, there was a study that was performed where researchers went around and they looked at people who went door to door soliciting for, for donations, kind of like what I'm doing right now, right, soliciting for donations. So they went door to door and what they found is that if the person on the other side of the door, if they had no emotional connection to the cause, that the likelihood of that person giving was very low. However, if the person who was asking for the donation was willing to suffer, meaning that the person was willing to do something like run a marathon, then more than likely the person was willing to give their money to that particular cause. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is there's a vat of water down there that's been super cooled. 
It's a super cool vat of water, which means that it's well, well below freezing. So what I'm going to do is I am going to go down, and I'm going to put my hands in this vat of water because I want you all to know, first of all, how much I care about this church because I care about the cause of this church. The second reason why I'm putting my hands in that vat of water is because the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> and you all have been suffering for a long time. <laughs> now, I've only been here for three years, so I got on the bandwagon. I know nothing but the Cubs winning the World Series, right? Like, they've only done well since I've been here. And so I figure I have some suffering to atone for on my end of things that I got onto the bandwagon. Because you all have been suffering, some of you, for generations on this one. So I'm going to come down here. Now we'll see how cold this is right now. I've lost most of the feeling in my hand from the last two services. I think you all should know that. Oh, it's a lot warmer now. It was at 5 degrees at the first service. It's now at 11.5. That's Fahrenheit, by the way. Freezing is 32 degrees. So, as I stick this in, I do stick my hands in there, and I'm going to wait for a second, because it does hurt. What I want you all to know, and this is so important to me that you understand this, is that I am proud to be the pastor of this church, because you all are a group of people in here. You live it out. You don't just talk the talk. You walk the walk. You are a group of doers, and it is such an honor for me to be your pastor. So I want to end this morning by saying to you that I want you to walk next to me as we live out Jesus' vision for our lives, as we give of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And I want to thank you for all that you've given to our congregation. Amen. <laughs> Come feel it after the service. It burns. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.